I'm Christina. I get to talk this week about a very special part of Colossians. I was kind of like, ooh, I must be Priscilla's favorite because I get a really good part. It's, uh, and poor Jalise, man, I have like a million slides. I was looking to see how many slides can we have? It's way too many. So anyway, you can just go to the next slide whenever you're in doubt, Jalise, because I just got to go through these. And if we don't go through them all, it's okay, because every little bit is jam-packed with goodness. But this is um, all of Colossians printed out in a very small font. And I highlighted some parts in yellow that are about Jesus and some parts in green that are exhortation, which is kind of like do this parts. And I think if you look, you'll notice a pattern that it starts off with a lot about Jesus. And then it gets into the do this stuff. And I think those of you that have been in this for a while, we've got a new person at my table this week. So you know, wherever you are in your study, if you've kept up or not, I'm not going to assume. But if you've been with us, you know that we started off at the beginning, that white bit at the beginning was Paul saying, hey, I've never met you, but I'm hearing great things, and I thank God for you. And then he's praying a little blessing over them. And then this little part, I got a little uh, scratch kind of mark in the side to show that's the little part we're talking about today. And it's all about Jesus. And if you want to know a real brief summary in case you haven't been doing the study, uh, and I'll do a little quiz for those of you that have been doing the study. Who is number one? You got it. You've been doing your homework. So that's the theme. Jesus is number one, and it sounds like something we could teach in our children's ministry this morning. Even they could get it. And yet, do we really get it? It is so hard to get in our hearts that Jesus is number one. And here's something that kind of blows my mind about it. Because I'm like studying it, and I've got this brain that's like, if I think the right thing, then I'll be the good little Christian, right? So if I just think these things are true, then it'll be like plot armor in my life. Bad things won't happen because I'll be thinking the right things. I won't have to learn things the hard way. And I'll be thinking, hmm, if I think the right things, then I'll feel the right way. Well, that is not looking at the context. So let me just remind you of the context of Scripture, which is that Jesus knew all this stuff. And yet he spent a night ugly crying, asking God for a different way, for a way out. Is there any other way? Feeling abandoned. God sent angels to minister to him, to get him through that. Jesus knew all this, and yet he still felt like that. Paul knew all this, and yet he's writing from prison. So... We think, oh, if we only think the right things, great things will happen, and great things will happen because Jesus did get through that trial because he knew all this. He knew that he had a hope in a heavenly father who cared about him and who saw him and who's actively involved and has a plan. And when you meditate on this, you might be able to believe those things, and they will get you through the seasons where God feels remote, where things don't go well. So it's not a cure-all but it is a great comfort. Okay, next please. So this is just a reminder of the where we get this. Um, I'm 
got a little arrow there. That's where we're talking about. And this is in Greek, and we can't read Greek. And so it's a reminder that this all is from a different culture 2,000 years ago in a different language. And when they translate it, it's a little tricky sometimes. They don't always agree. But they talk about this section, and sometimes in your heading in your Bible, you know, there was no numbers there. There's no headings there. There's actually no spaces between the words. So it's kind of a tricky language. But when they make headings in our Bible, which I appreciate, sometimes they call it the supremacy of Christ. And sometimes they call it the Christ hymn, because some people think it's a hymn. But there's nothing there that's like musical notes. There's nothing there that shows it's a poem. It's just what they think, because the language is so elevated. He's so worked up that he's like using this. Oh, I don't have words for this. It's like kind of a, a love letter where you're like, hmm, it's Shakespearean words here. We're doing poetry. So uh, next, please. So it's also got um, kind of this pattern that's a little bit like the Old Testament poetry, which was parallelism. So you know, I kind of highlighted in this one where you can see some reasons they think it's a poem or a hymn is because there's parallel ideas. But this is one of those things where you have to brush aside because I don't want to take all morning in talking about geeky things. So we'll go to the next thing, which is more about what is the content. And Paul is writing about Jesus being number one, but he's also writing against polytheism. You know, these people probably mostly were from a town where people worshiped many gods, and if bad things happened, it was because you didn't worship right. And he's saying, no, we're not adding new gods to the mix. This isn't a new god. And it's against dualism, because they were teaching that you know Jesus was all spirit, and he wasn't man. Uh, they were teaching you know spirit is good and matter is evil. Nope, this is all about how Jesus was the perfect man. He was a man, and that's part of it. And he's also refining some Jewish doctrines, which are monotheism. How do we say we believe every day, they would say, you know, we believe the Lord our God, the Lord is one, right? And now we're saying Jesus is God. So this is kind of a, a shocking thing. And he's kind of redefining what the Jewish people were believing about election, which was it's not just for Israel or um, this narrow definition, but it's about who follows Christ. So next, please. So it starts off with, um, he is the image of the invisible God. And that's kind of self-evident in some ways, because you know we're like, oh, well, if you look at Jesus, you know what God looks like. Like, I can kind of get my mind around it. But it's kind of a loaded language. So if you could go to the next one. We are looking at the context. So we're going to keep doing this. Like The danger we have in our culture is like the Instagramming of Bible verses. And it's not new to our generation. But when you cherry pick a Bible verse out of context, you can twist what it means. And you can put your own meaning on it. So it's really important to see not just what it means in the whole Bible, but also in this context. And if you look here, it starts off, he has rescued us from the, domin the domain of darkness and transformed us into the kingdom of the son he loves. I'm skipping down to 15. He's the firstborn over all creation. And down at the end, he says, he was, uh, everything was created for him, including thrones or dominions, rulers or authorities. So do you see there's kind of a theme in this section? Next, please. It's that the son rules over everything. Okay, So if this is a theme, that the son, Jesus, rules over everything, then when we see this word, next please, um, 
He is the image of the invisible God. We can do a Greek word study if we're really geeky like me and have fun. And if you don't want to do it, you don't have to. But when you do that, you can, you know, there's links in your beginning of your book. There's some links to places where you can find these uh, Greek word studies. And that word is icon. And if you go to the next one, please, icon is where we get the word icon. And it is kind of like a statue or a likeness or a bust. And when you pulled out your coin of Caesar, it didn't mean like, remember George Washington. We get a coin, we're like, remember George Washington, you know? No, it means, remember, Caesar is in control of the money. He's the ruler of the land. It's like when you pull out a coin now in Canada, I'm assuming, and it's got Queen Elizabeth, and you're like, oh, this isn't right because King Charles is in charge, you know? It should show you who's in charge, the icon. The image shows you that the king is in charge. You're in his kingdom. Next, please. The other place you have icons is here's Apollo at his temple. And they knew that that wasn't really Apollo, but that reminded them that Apollo is present. Apollo is in charge in this temple. Apollo, right? Well, the icon of God is Jesus. Jesus on earth wasn't just the image of God in the sense that he resembled God but he was showing you who's in charge. The kingdom of God was at hand when Jesus came. He was in the image of God. Now, this is a confusing phrase for me, and I'm, I'm, this is a theme. Like, why is this so weird is kind of a theme of this study. So next, please. Uh, I'm like, humans are made in God's image, so how is it any different that Jesus is the image of God, right? Because we remember in creation that God created man in his own image, so I'm thinking, how is this any different? Next, please. And here is all the differences. So let's just go through this. We'll take some time here so Jalise can rest her weary finger. OK, so the image of, in Colossians, there's a lot of references to Genesis. So we see here that Jesus is the image of the invisible God, and humans were created in the image of God, right? We see that they're both like, remember, man was supposed to rule over all the things on the land. They're both kind of like preeminent, right? But here we get big differences. Because the sun created all things, whereas humans were created. The sun rules all things. We're going to get into that. It's the whole cosmos, invisible and visible. But humans just rule the earth, right? The sun was in the beginning. Humans were created in the beginning. So here we get to some interesting things. First in the new creation was the sun, and Adam was the first to fall. And then the sun was indwelt by the fullness of God. Humans had the breath of God in them. So you see that we're both in the image of God, but Jesus is profoundly more like God than we are. He created everything. He, we both rule, though, right? Man is supposed to rule over the earth. And you and I here today, we're supposed to be like Jesus, and we're supposed to be fulfilled as humans who are in the image of God because we are supposed to represent Jesus to everyone around us. We're supposed to be little silos of the kingdom on earth, showing people that the love of God is here. So we're all like 
in the image of God. We're all like God, but Jesus is more so. He's the perfect image of God. And we're also in the image of God in the sense that we're all showing who God is. We're all representing him, and we're all showing him that the kingdom is at hand, that God is involved in ruling right here on earth. Okay, next, please. So the image of God means that Jesus is the human face of Yahweh, and it means that Jesus is actively involved. He is present. He is ruling. He's in power. He didn't just create things like a top and then watch it spin and fall. Nope, he is actively involved. That's a great comfort. You know, when Jesus was in the garden really unhappy, what was a comfort to him? The joy set before him, he endured the cross. For the joy set before him, he was able to endure all that because he knew that his heavenly father was actively involved, even though he was about to be crucified, even though these guys kept falling asleep in the garden, even though bad stuff was going to happen. He wasn't really alone because he knew his father was with him, and he knew that the plan was active, that it wasn't just being ignored. You know, a child can be abused, but one of the worst ways that a child, in many ways, but one of the worst ways is to be ignored. A child who is ignored, a child who is neglected, is one of the most disturbed children. Very hard to come recover from that. This is not our situation. We are not ignored. We have the God who sees, who knows us. Okay, next, please. The next part of this verse, huh, we'll pick up speed because that was all the first verse. Um, does this mean that Christ was created first and is a created being? He is the firstborn of all creation. So remember, this is in Greek. It's a different culture. We're talking about firstborn. Now, those of you who watch The Crown might get this a little more because, you know, there's an heir and there's a spare, right? It's about <laughs> primogenitor and who gets the power, right? Now, Queen Elizabeth's dad wasn't the firstborn, but he got all the rights of the firstborn because the firstborn gave him up. So next, please. You can see that this is common. And why is this a big deal? You know, the Jehovah's Witnesses don't think that Jesus was fully God. They think he was the firstborn. So they take this quite literally like he was born in the sense that he's a man, right? So we're kind of drilling into something that's a false teaching. And it was confusing for a lot of um, people over the centuries, not just the Jehovah's Witnesses. But you can see here, I've got all these verses um, where firstborn is a metaphor, right? So David in Psalm 89 is talking about how God will make David the firstborn, the highest of the kings of the earth. Well, David, we all know, was not the firstborn in his family, and God was a big fan of elevating people who weren't the firstborn to the firstborn position. So that's part of the reason we know what this means, that it's it's a metaphor in many places. And then the next, please. Context, again, is key. You know, if you look at the context and you see that this guy is the image of the invisible God, everything was created by him. All things have been created through him. You, you, can't, you can't tell me that you can read all this in context and think that this person was created because we got all in there too many times, right? So. It's helpful when we look at context to know this. And then the other thing is, if you go to the next one, please, you know, that's our theme, is that the son is number one. He's preeminent. So that's what the first board is telling us about, that he has the position, he has the status 
of being the firstborn, the most powerful, the one responsible for everyone else. He's got all the power. He's the firstborn. The next part, next slide, please. For This is in Colossians. For everything was created by him in heaven and on earth, the visible and the invisible, whether thrones or dominions or rulers or authorities, all things have been created through him and for him, and he is before all things, and by him all things hold together. I love this part, that by him all things hold together. You know, this kind of reminds me back to, um, oh, I have a slide on this. Okay, well, what I said about this here is that he is the sustainer of the universe. He's holding all the good stuff together. There is... Um, the next slide is a kind of a reference to Genesis. Remember, at the beginning of Genesis, the world was formless and void, and there were waters. And remember, waters represents chaos in the Old Testament because the sea was so scary. And you have this image at the beginning that all the darkness and all the chaos in the world is bad, but God, Jesus, he holds all things together. He's keeping it from falling apart. So when you're feeling like, gosh, you know, this is all a mess except for this one thing, well, you know, that's where God's involved. Anytime you see things holding together, that's where God's involved. He's sustaining. He's holding everything together. He's bringing order and rule. So the next slide, please, is that Jesus is the head of the body, head of the church. He rules and sustains the people of God, the church. The people of God are now understood to be the people of Jesus Christ. So Jesus is um, the head of the church here, and not just the local gatherings, but the universal church. And part of being the head is that he is the authority and the source of life for the church. So in Jesus, we have everything we need. So, you know, I find it a little confusing. I, if you're praying to a saint... That confuses me. And I think, you know, you can be confused and still be a follower of Jesus. But why would you pray to a saint? Why would you pray to Mary when you can pray to Jesus? We have everything in Jesus. These people were praying to angels, it sounds like. They were reaching out to angels. And, you know, angels minister to Jesus in the garden. They have their place to play. But this is not, this is not what we need. What we need is Jesus. He's the Lord of the angels. The Lord of the hosts means he's the Lord of the angel army. So everything we need is found in Jesus. He's the head of the body. The next, uh, next slide, please. He's the head of the body. Uh, he's the beginning, the firstborn from the dead. So that's kind of another weird phrase. Why does Paul call Jesus the first to rise from the dead? Because we know Lazarus rose from the dead. We know other people rose from the dead. Maybe you wrestled with that a little. So uh, next slide, please. The context is... Um, what we saw, you know, that whole reference of being first place in everything, right? So he is first in some way in that he's ruling. He's first in that he's um, reconciling everything to himself. He's making peace through his blood shed on the cross. So um, it reminds me of Philippians, if you want to go to the next one. When he had come as a man, he humbled himself becoming obedient to the point of death, even death on the cross. For this reason, God highly exalted him. So when Jesus died and was resurrected, he didn't become a body that died again, 
right? Lazarus, he was resurrected, and he enjoyed some family time, and then someday he died again. These other people, this is the pattern. But Jesus is the firstborn from the dead in that he's the first one to have his new resurrected body that he's going to have forever in heaven. So that's why he's firstborn from the dead. Uh, next slide, please. In the resurrection, Jesus completes the work of redemption for creation. So for as in Adam all die, so in Christ all shall be made alive. Um, that's kind of wild to think about. That when they got to see Jesus, they got to see the one thing they would ever see that will never die or decay ever again. And he's the first. He's not the last. So that's great hope to us. Okay, next slide. Now we get into the end part, which I don't know if you studied this part. Because usually, if you're like me, I like rush through the end of the study during the week. And um, this part has some really naughty, as in like a knot, not like bad. Um, stuff in it. So once you're alienated from God and we're enemies in your minds, and that's kind of trippy there, uh, because of your evil behavior, but now he has reconciled you by Christ's physical body through death to present you holy in his sight without blemish and free from accusation if you continue in your faith, established and firm, not moved from the hope held out in the gospel. So, I don't know, I've got like this guilty conscience or something. I'm always like kind of panicked and paranoid when I read things because when I read this part, I'm like, oh no, I've misunderstood everything. It's all down to me. It's all back to a do-it-yourself faith. I have got to get my act together or else I am not going to get all this good stuff. I got to, what do I got to do? I got to continue in my faith, established and firm. Man, I got to. Do that. Okay, that's kind of the way my brain works. Uh, next slide. So they could maybe not mean that. So let's look at how it could maybe not mean that. Look at this part in Luke where Satan says to Jesus, if you are the son of God, tell this stone to become bread. Now, why am I putting this this way? I'm putting it this way because um, the experts kind of disagree because they're also translating from ancient Greek. And there's more than one way this could be translated. So I'm telling you two different ways it could be translated. Um, and that's why I'm saying maybe it's this way. So this is one way. So you can see how here, if Jesus is the son of God, well, that's ridiculous. If Jesus isn't the son of God, they wouldn't be having this conversation. I mean, like, there's no doubt in anyone's mind in this conversation that Jesus is the son of God. He's just saying, if this, then why don't you do that, right? Same with the Matthew part. Jesus is saying, if by Bezalzebud, I don't know, cast out if I buy Bezalzebub, he's some bad guy, uh, cast out demons, by whom do your sons cast them out? For this reason, they will be your judges. Well, Jesus didn't do that, but he's just saying it for the sake of argument, right? So it could be that Paul's saying, for the sake of argument, that might be what the if is, that it's not about, oh, it's a conditional thing, okay? So next slide, please. So that's next. So this is um, just what I said that it could just be an as, as, uh, assumption, like if, but he's really insistent and confident that they will continue, okay? That there's no doubt in his mind, right? Well, that would be good to know. So next slide. If you look at the context, you can look at the verb forms. And he starts off about stuff in the past, and then he goes to stuff in the present. So he says, once you were alienated from God and were enemies, so in the past, 
you were alienated from God. But now he has reconciled you. So in the past, he reconciled you through Christ's physical body, through death, to present you. So we're in the present, in his holy sight, without blemish and free from accusation. So, next slide. The past, we, we can't, it's, you can't understand this without the context. And so he's not going to go say all this stuff about how you've done this. You know, all he's done from the beginning, this is not a letter of rebuke, is say, all the amazing things he's seen from your faith, how he's thanking God for your faith. This all happened. How could it not happen? It's, it's, what happened in the past was clear evidence of their salvation. And now he's talking about, you know, they already have the redemption. They already have the forgiveness of sins. And now he's talking about living out their faith, sanctification. So he's kind of big on this. He's like, don't run the race in vain, you know. Don't, don't become saved and then live like you're not saved. You know, it's kind of like at the end of the Civil War, like these soldiers didn't know the war was over because they didn't have radios. And they were actually at peace and free to go home. But instead, they were still out fighting in the woods of Texas or somewhere till they finally found out months later, oh, the war's over. You were actually free, but you didn't know and you weren't living it. So there's kind of this, um, this part. Next slide, please, because I'm, I'm floundering there in my explaining of it. But if you look here, the apostle's goal of ministry is that we may present every man perfect in Christ Jesus. We look down in the next part that we'll study. He wants to see you not bogged down in old things. He wants to see you living in faith. And um, so here, next slide. So the terms holy and blameless and beyond reproach may refer to spiritual maturity. Uh, he has reconciled us through Christ to present us to himself as spiritually mature people. And that this will happen as long as we continue to focus on faith in the gospel. So he's referring to God's purpose for the believer's present earthly life, sanctification. So that's so confusing. Next slide. This will maybe help. Okay. So let's look back at the text again. If you continue in your faith, established and firm, not moved by the hope of the, held out in the gospel. Well, how can we do that? How can we live a life that shows that we are not alienated with God. We are not enemies with God anymore in our minds because we are reconciled through the Christ's death. How can we present, how can we live lives that are holy without blemish and free from accusation? You know, that sounds really hard to do. And I feel a little overwhelmed by that idea. But maybe that's because my focus is on the wrong thing. So next slide. Am I more conscious of my lack than the Lord's supply? See how I've got if so big there? It's a really big word. That's what I focus on. I'm kind of like Peter, walking on the waves. Yay me, I'm walking on the waves. I obviously believe in Jesus because I'm walking on the waves, and that's crazy. But I'm looking at the waves now, and that's not how I'm going to float. i got to be looking on Jesus. So next verse. If we look instead at what Jesus has done, he has reconciled you. He's going to present you holy in his sight. He's going to present me without blemish and free from accusation. It is not a do-it-yourself faith. It's all about him. You know, at the very beginning, he's doing this prayer, and he's like, I thank God for you. You know, he doesn't actually say thank you. He's thanking God for them because he knows it's really not him and it's not them. It's God. God does all the good stuff. So one way I can 
continue in the faith is that I can recognize that in Christ I have everything I need for life and godliness. Next slide, please. So it would be great when I'm freaking out about stuff to say, hey, it's kind of like that thankfulness exercise. Why don't I thank God for what he's done in me? And let's just look a little bit, next slide, on what he has done. So we read in verse 12, the Father who has enabled you to share in the saints' inheritance in the light. You know, God made me worthy to be a part of this inheritance, part of his kingdom, part of his family, part of being in the light instead of the darkness, like we were talking about at the beginning. Um, next slide. God rescued me from the domain of darkness and transferred us into the kingdom of the son he loves. He transferred me into the land where love rules. You know, that really is where I want to be, right? I don't understand his plan. I don't understand why suffering is in the menu. I kind of would prefer a different plan. But thankfully, I'm not in charge because God is wise. And not only is God wise, but he's merciful and good and loving. And I am in his kingdom, and he's ruling over my life. He's going to not let anything in my life be wasted. He's not going to let anything in my life um, be done to hurt me because he's got me secure. He's got my future secure with him. He's going to work everything out for my good and his glory. So we also read that all my sins are canceled in him, and I am free and forgiven. That redemption and that forgiveness of sin. So when I'm feeling really bad about some really stupid parenting mistake I made, I can be like, oh, I'm really beating myself about, up about this, God. And I'm just glad that I'm forgiven in you and that no stupid mistake that I make is something you can't work around. In fact, you're the expert around working around stupid mistakes. And you have always incorporated them into your plan. And when I'm like, how is this person that's harming me and people I love. How is this part of your plan? I can remember, you know what? You made Judas the treasurer. Wow, that was really weird. What a weird plan you have. Is it because you're mean? Is it because you're foolish? Is it because you're out of control? Is it because you're not paying attention? No, we got all this here saying that you are in control. You are not mean, you're loving. You are not detached. You are holding it all together and you are working it all for my good and your glory. So this is a real good comfort for me, if your brain works like me, to try to take myself to those things when I'm feeling overwhelmed. The next slide, please. You know, when we lose sight of who God is and how much he loves us, we lose sight of hope. We begin to have like attachment parenting problems, like a kid with that was raised in one of those terrible orphanages in like, was it Russia or someplace, remember? And they were just put in like a little playpen and then they were adopted out and they never could attach because they never felt loved because they had no hope. They felt so insecure. They had to look out for themselves all the time. They only had themselves to make themselves happy. And that's what we get like when we forget that the Lord loves us so much that he sent his son to die for us on the cross. Jesus is there advocating for us to the father saying, I am for this person. And that clock isn't actually moving. Um, sorry, just realized that. Okay. Oh, that is right. Is that true? Okay. Okay. 
I was very excited about Jesus there, and then I had this moment of fear. That just shows you. God knows that I'm but dust. Okay, but that sounds bad. I am only dust. Okay, so what slide are we on? Oh, this one. Yeah. Love leads to hope, which leads to faith. And that is where I want to leave us today. When you go to your groups, maybe you can talk about a time when you are not feeling secure in your faith, where you are not feeling secure in God's love and how God used his people or how God used a song or how God used his word to remind you how great his love was for you and how that gave you hope in the midst of that hard time. Thank you. I was nervous. I'm glad I didn't sound nervous. Oh, I'm still on a mic. Yay. Hi. I was nervous, it turns out.